welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, a look at investment platforms. Many of us heard about investment platforms in the news, online, or seen ads on the tube, but what do they really do? So we're going to take a recap into what investment platforms are, and who's it for, and also how it's changing. If you're interested in the subjects of investments and want to know more, we did episode 167, which was a special all about what is wealth management. We did episode 170 when we looked at asset management, and we also did a brief 101 on the space in episode 135. I suspect 2018 is going to be another year in which we see the rise of the millennial being in everybody's predictions. I wonder if uh, these macro trends are coming into how we're interacting with the money we're saving for our pensions, or are we looking at savings and investments enough as a society in the West? And joining me to pick through this, we have 11FS's own Pete Townsend. Pete, how are you, sir? Excellent. Thank you, Simon. It's always good to have you back. And we have amassed some superstars in the room with us. Uh, I'm have the good fortune of being joined by Adam French, who's not only the co-founder of Scalable Capital, he's the CEO too. Adam, how are you, sir? Very good. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for being with us. We have Sean Port, fresh from doing stuff with uh, BBC every other other week or other month, it seems. Uh, the Chief Investment Officer at Nutmeg. Sean, thank you for being with us. Pleasure. Good to be here. You know, good to good to have you. We're, we're excited to have you on board. And uh, rounding up the most diverse panel I've ever seen in my entire life, uh, <laughs> Mr. John Willis, the Chief Commercial Officer at Cal- How are you, sir? Very good. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it, too. So, gentlemen, uh, thank you for being here. Who wants to start me off? Let's just set the scene. What's an investment platform? I'm I'm happy to kick it off. Um, So the way I always think about a a platform historically is two ways. Um, One is a a fund supermarket uh, where where somebody can go and they can buy one of a number of different investment products. Um, But the other way I like to think about it, and this is kind of with my industry hat on, uh, you hear about advisor platforms. Uh, And this isn't something that uh, end investors use to get access to the markets. This is something that advisors use uh, to provide a technological solution to an advisor business, to provide them with access to investment products for for their clients. Um, So it's really a broad spectrum. It's DIY investors going onto a platform to pick products, uh, but it's also the technology which underlies advisor, wealth manager businesses that asset managers ultimately plug into as well. So a broad range of propositions. Wow, a whole bunch bunch of stuff anybody want to add to that one yeah, so I think the, the supermarket analogy is really useful because it, you know you are going in buying lots of stuff, but you're doing the cooking. Uh, you're selecting products, but you really are buying a collection of things. So it's not really. It's not the same as a restaurant where it's all been cooked for no, you, Sean. It's certainly this not is, three this, stars. Sean's doing a lot more for you here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's you go in. Uh, you know, you're the master of your own cooking, uh, but it's what you choose. I wish I was that Sean. I really was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit like a good supermarket. There's lots and lots of choice, uh, and you can buy completely wrong things, or you can buy you know great selection of maybe ready meals uh, lots to choose from lots to choose from um and then from from your perspective john uh, as you look at that that platform who are the people using that platform you mentioned the, that i could go in and use it but adam also mentioned that it could be uh used in a business to business context by an ifa or a, or somebody in the wealth space so are there other actors in there or is that the majority of it uh, there's a whole range of, of, of different actors using different types of, of platforms. So we talked about the fund supermarkets. They came, I don't know, probably 15 years ago, uh, you know, where IFAs would want to buy for a range of different fund managers rather than a client picking one, and that just helped them get things together. You've got the direct investors. You've got super high net worth coming out of the private banks with more exotic things. You've got platforms that do bits of pensions and SIPs and everything else. So... Trying to describe a platform in, in one thing, it, it, if you just look at it, it's, it's a bit of technology that brings together a whole load of things that, that give value potentially to the customers of, of, of that vehicle. Ultimately, it's helping somebody serve the end investor or it's serving the investor directly it's a, as a bit of technology. Correct. Okay. It's also worth bearing in mind, it's not just the technology to buy stuff, it's also technology to hold stuff and hold it safely. So we all, uh. often, we don't talk about custody. So behind the platforms, there's often a really safe platform, custody, custody service where those assets you buy are held securely, safely, uh, they're in trust, you know, that is like very much like the bank vault for you. So it's not just about buying stuff, it's actually holding the stuff 
safe. Good old-fashioned vaults. You just don't see those anymore. <laughs> no. No, they, they do. We, I've seen them. And, and they're more file cabinets, but with an envelope with a big piece of plastic tape over the, cross, over the back of it. I, I think it's pretty cool that you can, you can look at these, from my perspective, a couple of ways. And I, I was thinking about a, um, an analogy about an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I'm not going to go there because it, we, you know, I don't want to start talking about, thinking about Chinese food at this time of the day. Um, but the difference between those that use a platform to invest directly uh, in the markets, and whether that's equities, bonds, derivatives, um, and Sean, like you're saying, where that custodian feature of it does become incredibly important. Custodian feature is important when you're investing directly in funds, obviously, as well. Um, a little bit different when it comes to ETFs, but just that different approach that you're taking to gathering customers on board that platform when you are either doing the direct investing or doing fund investing or doing the advisory on top of that as well and how you bring on board those customers are all going to be a little bit different depending upon um what it is that that you're executing what you're delivering as a platform i think you know as we as we look at this a number of things have changed the way that different platforms now want to behave particularly rdr in the uk when when uh, the regulator moved away from people being able to get paid commission from from funds and other things to really making charges clear. And therefore, when somebody's sitting in front of an end consumer and now saying, hey, when I used to advise you to put some money into these funds, I used to tell you it was all for free. But really what happened was the fund manager would pay me, you know, so much up front and so much on an ongoing basis. And that equated to, I don't know, £450. Now, when I'm sitting in your front room, Pete, and I'm saying to you, hey, for this bit of advice, I want to pay you £450. You want some pretty good advice, and you want it more than about one thing. And this is why I think you're starting to see platforms now that would have just been a funds platform, or it would have been a stockbroking platform for equities, or it would have been a, a SIP provider. Now, because the user of that platform wants to get more value, either to justify fees or reduce costs, we're seeing platforms now want to be many more things to many more people. Yeah, it's like how far can you creep into the wealth management space, right? You know, wealth management is not just about investing directly into markets or investing through funds. It's about tax advisory. It's about property advisory, estate planning, all those types of things. How do you digitalize that? That is, that's a tough thing to start thinking about. We've seen the, you know, um, platforms take over elements of the wealth management market, but there's still a lot further to go. But I think um, if you want to include robo-advisors, for example, within the, the platform's definition, um, you've seen a shift away from the model of do-it-yourself and do it with you, which would be uh, with, the, uh, with an advisor alongside of you, uh, to a model which is do it for you. Uh, and that's something which wasn't delivered before for the masses. Uh, that was something which was delivered by a wealth manager for for uh, people of who are high net worth who had the assets to be able to invest with a with a private banker or with a high end wealth manager, but platforms and specifically robo advisors are allowing the do it for you model to be democratized. So it's no longer somebody having to go and make those decisions themselves because, you know, as Sean was mentioning, there's a lot of choice <laughs> and some of it is ready meals. Um, and what you would rather have is a chef picking the ingredients for you. Um, and to do that at scale is only really possible with technology. And I would say that robo-advisors are, are that new pl form of platform to be able to provide that business model. We've got a new platform to provide a new business model. Um, that's, that sounds pretty disruptive. Um, but what's happening in the market around that? So you mentioned, I think, a little bit of the shift from uh, DIY to do it for you. Is there not regulatory pressure around a platform moving from one to the other? Is that not taking on a, a lot more responsibility? And you just, is it better that people just focus on technology or, or is this driven by a real customer need? to have it done for you. And, you know, talk from, from Nutmeg's perspective, when we started our initial research back in 2011, it was all focused on what customers want. You know, want. That's why we focused on goals. What are people trying to achieve with their investing? What are they trying to achieve with their saving? It's not about, I want to go and buy this product I've heard of. It's actually, what am I trying to do here? And, you know, what do I want to achieve? Um, so that's why we focused on goals. And, and it's very much a service rather than here, we're going to sell you loads of products. And I think platforms generally are geared around, here's this latest product, why you should buy it. It's very much, you go on, it's about transaction 
it's about doing stuff it's about activity whereas a service is about helping you reach your goals and actually coaching you along that way keeping you on track when markets are going up and down it's very much the wealth management service and the coach rather than here's a, here's a thing you should own it's almost like that personal trainer. It's, it's a little bit of like teaching you how to do it, and some understanding and some literacy, but there's also a bit of um, keeping on track as well. Yeah, so we're going to do it for you. We're very clear that we manage portfolios for our customers. We manage portfolios in line with how much risk they want to take and what they're trying to achieve, you know, how long they want to invest for. But it's actually very much along the lines of, actually, we're doing this for you, but we're going to keep you informed. We're going to tell you what we're doing. We're going to keep you calm when markets are going down because, you know, markets go down. That's a fact of life. You know, any one year, you've got about 50% chance of losing money uh, but that's not a permanent loss unless you take your money out so you know we coach people along and help them become investors half of our customers are first-time investors and for pretty much anyone with your 20s 30s 40s or 50s first-time investing is scary uh, so we help people through that process because everyone needs to be an investor i think that's a really important point right because we you know we talk about the technology behind and what people are are buying and doing but particularly for the next generation that we've got to try and encourage, you know, this is investments, but it's about saving. And to your point, Sean, it's about a set of outcomes and goals. And we have traditionally sold product to people. And if you talk about savings now, and it kills me every time I hear this, right? We start trying to talk to the millennials of today. Uh, you can re-edit that and get me saying millennials far better. And I heard about snowflakes when I was with Pete in Dublin last week, and I never understood that before, so I'm <laughs> understanding much more about this. But, you know, we, we, we're trying to encourage this generation that are going to have it harder than any other generation, right? They're, they're coming into an economy with low growth. They're coming, into, they're coming in saddled with debt from university fees and other things. They're coming in with a property market that's, you know, so far exaggerated and they're not going to get the growth that fortunately people like I have seen over investing in properties. And then we say, and you've got to save. And we say, and the first thing you should save is in a pension. So we're going to try and maybe convince. thirty years ago, away you might see some benefit from this. Well, thing. I mean, you know, you're trying to tell, and I've got I've got a couple of, of sisters-in-law that are in their early thirties, they've got young families, and you're trying to tell them put some money into something and lock it away until when I don't know exactly when it is. Whereas they don't know whether you know when they're going to have their next child, when they want to buy their next car, when they want to have a holiday, buy their next house, do these other things. So you know, back to Sean's point, we encourage savings with some realistic goals that represent what their targets are and then we educate them about saving first and once we've got them to the point that they want to go on and save then we can start talking about some of the appropriate vehicles for the right cost for the right level of turn against a risk appetite but i do think there's a big challenge about education oh you're right uh, you know in this industry that we often duck i tried to educate yesterday and this wasn't financial advice just to state that that up front but a few months ago for a project we put together a, a, a few personas customer personas of an institutional investor and what their needs were um, a wealth investor and what their needs were and, and perhaps direct investor um, and one of those personas came to life in dublin yesterday when i I was speaking with a friend of mine who's 25 year old CTO of a tech startup um, and he has some money he wants to invest doesn't have a clue what to do um, he knows that he needs to start saving so he came over to me and he asked me and I said well you know take a look at nutmeg take a look at scalable take a look at these other platforms um, he said well what's the allocation I said well here's the basic allocation for you um, I said you're 25 right he said subtract 100 from that 75 percent equity, 25% fixed income, there's your algorithm. And that is kind of the age old, you know, um, rule of thumb from, you know, th that comes up. Um, he said, really, that's it? I said, no, that's not it. I said, you got to go off and do your research. You got to figure out what's right for you. How much risk do you want to take on? What is the amount of money that you can actually afford to put away uh, each month? And that, you know, so I sent him down a rabbit hole. Um, hopefully comes back next week with, with some good ideas. <laughs> and I think that's interesting. You've got to go do your research, but I'm too busy. There's there's too much short attention spun theater. I've got, Facebook's got 15 notifications and I got a whole bunch of work to do. I'm working longer hours. I might never end up in a in a property. And by the way, you know, first kid might be on the way and blah, blah. The, the, that person who's running a business or is is trying to become successful at a young age, this short attention span theater, this there's always another thing to think about. Go away and research isn't a good answer. So there's this question of how do I ambiently build a relationship with somebody and, and start to start to grow that. And and also when I do save, what results am I gonna see? 
Um, what, when am I going to see a return? Should I be patient? How do I become patient when I'm so used to things that are immediate and, and right now? Um, as, as some of you know, our co-founder at 11FS, Jason Bates, often talks about, uh, sort of uh, famous for, for what he did at Monzo, often talks about how do you give somebody that immediate response and gratification how do you give that um sort of surprise and delight inside of an experience and that bringing that into this context is really really hard and i think can you do that can you really surprise and delight or or do you have to be kind of very sort of now i'll put my arm around you and things are hard and here's the spreadsheet and can, can we get a best of both here can we do something for this generation yeah i think there's a balance so first off you make it easy and very accessible so often people ring up and say i did it and it seemed really easy have i done it right you <laughs> that only took me five minutes is that you know is that wrong um so we often you know we make it really easy make it very accessible doesn't mean we dumb it down but you make it very accessible for people and take out the jargon uh, we've used already already used quite a lot of jargon today uh you know we try and take that jargon out at least make it very easy for people to understand uh make it very accessible make it friendly make it human it's not just because it's online doesn't mean it's not human that people are involved um so it's making it easy but also it is hand-holding you know people whether you're experienced or whether you're not experienced you need your hand holding through markets through the ups and downs you know, you're investing for 10 20 years maybe even three years you, even over those cycles you need your hand holding maybe it's your pension that you're not going to touch for 50 years but you want to know it's being well looked after and and that it's you know on on track so you need that pete mentioned something about the age-old advice has any of the age-old advice changed because john you mentioned that the market has changed the the world that uh people this generation finds themselves in whether they're inheriting wealth from their parents or grandparents whether they're um young and successful or young and uh, just kind of trying to get through life and, and striving to to do the right thing with life have have has that advice changed given the world we find ourselves in i think the general principles have remained the same you know there's some some age old principles like you have to be diversified it's the only free lunch of investing don't put all your eggs in one basket that type of thing but but really um sound principles that are used across higher end wealth services but general retail clients have not got that message they go and buy stuff that's fun and exciting like bitcoin (laughs) that's the worst of it but yeah maybe i've heard that the the good thing to be this year is you know indian small companies right i'm buying indian small companies last year i bought latin american equities that's done okay you know people buy by vintage and buy by themes and stories they don't do the sound thing that adam's talking about you know think about diversifying be a bit safe and steady and cautious and And do this about the long term you know all of these principles yeah there's a challenge to safen steady as well a little bit though right because it, it comes back to risk appetite there, there's some scary num, uh, numbers about the amount of money currently held in cash ices in the uk earning you might as well call it zero right you might as well have it under your bed and get a better level of comfort lift your mattress up every now and again have a look flick through the the notes right you're losing three percent a year because of inflation so it's not actually zero is minus three but exactly but so you're losing minus three percent every year just holding in germany on. it's two trillion euros that they're holding cash accounts and that's on negative interest rates negative uh, nominal interest close rate. to a trillion in ireland as well so let's say i had a hundred pounds in stashed under the mattress every year three pounds of that goes disappearing it's on a constant currency base at least do we want to poke a hole in inflation? Do we want to go there? <laughs> well, well, it came up in the FT this morning, and it, and it was an opinion piece by um, one of the managers from Principal Global Investors, I think. And he was suggesting that technology was running so quickly that the reason that prices start to go up from time to time is that quality improves on products and that prices then, manufacturers say we can charge higher prices, so in general prices go up. But because technology is moving so quickly, you don't necessarily have that impact and perhaps you know, you should be looking at nominal GDP instead of GDP. Now, talk about jargon, Sean, right? So maybe let's, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that up in, in that, you know, that inflationary factor and in general, these old economic models that have been the trusted go-to for years and years are perhaps now being challenged. Um, just the basic rules of supply and demand, um, diversification, as you're mentioning. I watched as a friend of mine put together a portfolio where he just completely blew me away in terms of, well, I've looked at these five to six to seven different stocks, I believe in what they're going to do. Um, and I'm just looking at ETFs, right? And he uh, he, he's gone far beyond that with a different set of principles and what, rules. What, what I heard there was this is really complicated for the average person to have any idea where to start. And that's the position they were in five years ago or so when they had to go and do it themselves. And that was the only thing they had access yeah. to. Well, but I mean, you know, 
five years ago, ten years ago, people used to broadly recognise that and they would go and get advice. Now, they believe that advice was free. It never really was free, but they'd go and get advice. So they'd go to the IFA and the IFA would would you know give them some advice it normally would start around a product most IFAs you know even way back in the day weren't really picking funds because they really understood the performance they were often picking funds because there was some special on that week on the amount of commission that was available to them or something else which is why RDR moved it all to a fee basis what we're seeing now though is that the the challenge about advice and what to buy is going to come in a whole range of different avenues you know, the millennials of today, they will ask family, they will ask friends, they will ask forums, they'll go on to different things and go, hey, I'm thinking about sticking 100 quid away a month. Somebody tell me what to do with it, right? So we've got to, you know, this whole thing about what to do is going to go into different, into different places, but we've still got to get them to the point of why to do it first. And then we've got to give them a good experience. And I'm so glad, Sean, that your stuff is easy to get to because there's a whole load of stuff in financial services that really just isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's been a point of principle, I think. Yeah, my view is that the industry as a whole sells complexity. Uh, we make stuff complex if we can. If it is complex, we don't simplify it. And actually, because it's complex, we can charge lots of money around it. Mm-hmm. As an industry, we love complexity, but that's not on the side of the consumer mm-hmm. or you know, the investor. So we make things as simple as possible. It's less sexy. There's not much of a sneer. It's less of a story. Um, yeah, we're not selling themes and you can buy this latest fad. You know, But it's keeping things simple. And keeping costs low is just one of the, the basic bedrocks of how to invest for the long term. And so that's an alternative to just stick it in a cash ISA, as John was saying, which was kind of the the old. I mean, I remember I started my career 15, 16 years ago. It's you know, 16 years ago, 16 years old, dating myself. Um, and the first thing I looked at was the products my bank offered. And the first thing I saw is, oh, I've started a job now. I should probably think about saving. And the company came along with their pension plan. And then I was like, oh, they have this ISA thing. I wonder if in the past couple of decades, the, the role of the banks and their role around financial literacy really changed to a certain degree. And now it's left to people who are around the edges on the technology side to start to do that. Because savings and investments moved away from a core thing and a core theme of what was in the financial services sector to something further to the edges. And we became much more of a consumer debt society than a savings and investment society. Can, how, do we redress that just with education or is there is there a product focus we can build is there is there something else that we should be it's all about trust okay so if you want to encourage people away from from one thing to something else you've got to give them what you promise them so if you're promising them savings and investment they don't want to see that you know after six months of moving out from the cash isa it's worth less than they would have had in the cash isa because they suddenly think it's you know it it hasn't performed so whether that's stripping out of costs or anything else whatever that is so we have to build a level of trust i mean and interesting you talk about the banks and other things i don't think the millennials trust banks these days right they use it as a it's a commodity they have to have a bit of banking but they're not going to trust them for, for advice if you look at the trusted brands that they have it, it's not the same trusted brands that we would have thought of 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's building that piece up as well and, and, and building a level of trust, some education at a level of trust, delivering against the promises that are made to them, and then you'll start to see that build up. But it's got to be slow. You know, you're not going to get people just piling in. They're going to try a range of different things, I think, and figure out what works. What was interesting for us, though, and what was game-changing in our in our growth so far was when we partnered with ING uh, in Germany, um, th- third biggest bank in Germany, who'd never done wealth management before. They were a direct bank, so they didn't have branches. They did savings, current accounts, mortgages, and brokerage, um, but never had done managed portfolios. And um, we partnered with them to become a core part of their proposition. Um, And that's growing significantly. Um, So the last few months, we've been doing uh, above 100 million a month of assets just through that channel, Um, which I think shows that there is an opportunity for the banks if they decide that they're going to come back into this space in size with a proper service. Um, So what I think that... So it can't just be cash. There has to be more behind it in terms of 
of service. That, and, and Sean mentioned service earlier being very different to just pushing product. It's really about how do I surround that with the education and the experience and also the, the gradient of difficulty where I'm teaching you and but I'm learning from you and I'm bringing you into this. Totally. And I think that's one of the values of robo-advice that is it's somewhat intangible when you just look at it. I think once you're a client, you understand that you actually, you're not just buying a portfolio. You know, it's not the same as going on a fun supermarket and just picking the nutmeg portfolio. It's the service around that. It's the contact you have with the client services. It's the, the messaging you get around how you're going to reach your goals. And it's all of those elements that provide you with access to what only very, very rich people used to get access to, um, but do it on mass and do it economically, you know, for business. So one of the big challenges that we have as startup business uh, as a startup business is customer acquisition costs. How do we acquire a customer for the right price? For big institutions, they have millions of clients. What they have a problem with is delivering something that people trust because they've been burnt previously from using the investment services that they used to provide. So they used to, you know, use the financial advisors of the bank and they used to be sold product. They weren't offered a service. And that's what they needs to change interesting so i think a really good case study here is brexit uh for, for both of us actually um, um adam was launched around that time as well so um going through brexit you know most of our customers are worried what's going to happen about brexit what's going to happen to my portfolio it's going to happen to the pound which most of my portfolio is measured in yeah so we were you know we we're massively over communicating with our customers we're keeping them almost updated on a weekly basis this is what we're doing for your portfolio we've added this protection because we're quite concerned about the result we're adding more gold we've got a lot more yen in the portfolio we've got long dated government bonds we were taking out protection to help them through this process and actually over the two days after the referendum the FTSE was down by seven percent over two days and all our portfolios were positive so we had customers tweeting pictures their portfolio saying the UK's gone into Armageddon and my portfolio I've made money on ISA for the first time so over communicating being on top of things and, and really help customers you know get that trust see the working action it's much more tangible you can see what we're doing for you why we're doing it for you and it keeps people really engaged with what we're doing for that you. communication thing's really interesting i think culturally in the uk we just don't talk about our savings we don't t we don't tweet our portfolio in the us uh people talk about their 401k's performance and uh and it's kind of like almost a, a sport you know it's like uh oh my 401k is really down this year and i'm feeling really bad or it's really up this year and i'm feeling really good in the uk um and, and i think a lot of europe uh, a lot of the European market it's been a bit more uh, conservative and we don't really want to talk about it but we can talk about it without being vulgar that can be okay we should as a society think about how we look after our future and and look after the future generations I think that's a great point for us to take a quick ad break so uh, I want to thank our sponsors and we'll be back in just a moment Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right Fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test Fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. This episode of Fintech Insider News is brought to you by TopTal. Doug McKay approached TopTal to access their network of talented developers after he ran into trouble working with developers through a budget agency. And then they landed me with uh, a gentleman who I now view as a friend, uh, Luke, uh, who's at TopTal. And there it was, I was wasting time trying to save money. We have to solve these problems that my contractors in Belarus have done. And uh, within 20 minutes of interviewing this gentleman, I'd hired him, I'd given him the keys to the kingdom. That was about 11 o'clock in the morning. By two o'clock in the afternoon, he'd already fixed it. We launched uh, the application, Sidekick, in uh, November at Web Summit in Lisbon. All done by really myself and one developer. All from one talent, the top talent set me up with. So it was a, it was a phenomenal experience to go through that. TopTel access their exclusive network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts to find the right person for your business. I understand what my end mission is and my requirements. And then I let TopTel kind of coach me into what the best solution might be. So I rely on them to uh, not just be a uh, remote job board, but more of a business partner where they're trying to understand my business 
Toptel is coming in as a person who's an expert who can hit the ground running and give you insight immediately. There are other things like, yeah, I'm I've now pivoting my business from purely DevOps standpoint into marketing and sales. And now I'm beginning to wonder, like, okay, Toptel, do you have anybody who can do marketing for me? <laughs> <laughs> I view them as a key partner. Um, they streamline my uh, workforce lookup cost. And ultimately, uh, we can profit together. And I think uh, that's where most better business relationships are, right? Uh, if you're buying something that's totally disposable, you're not valuing it. And, and I think with TopTel, it's not disposable. If you're hiring into a key project or looking for the next star hire, check out TopTel at TopTel.com. Thank you very much to our sponsors and uh, welcome back listeners. Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. As a reminder, we're venture builders for the digital age. We help organizations understand the future and we take a startup approach to building new ventures. You can find out more about us at 11FS.com. And remember, the team that bring you this podcast also bring you Blockchain Insider and Connection Interrupted. Those podcasts are on iTunes now and they're available for download. So please, please please check them out. All right, on with the show, and we're back in the room. Uh, the conversation during the break was about some of the things that uh, are challenging for wealth managers, some of the legacy platforms, some of the uh, heritage uh, that we have in terms of how things are done inside these organizations that make it more difficult to serve our end customer. And uh, I think it was uh, Adam and John and, and Sean were just kind of saying, uh, you have to start again in order to get around some of that. Or, or can you... Can you kind of transform your way can you can a can a digital a caterpillar become a digital butterfly john everything in life is possible it's just how much time and money you want to throw at something persistence but i think i mean you know the i think the honest answer frankly is no i think the scale of movement of change of technology and the new tools today transformation just are doesn't not work. compatible with the old and uh, uh, I, I remember a great uh Texan friend of mine who used to have this great saying which I'm going to repeat now he said it's like putting lipstick on a pig the front end might look a bit prettier but the rest of it's still a pig and and you know if you take some of the legacy technology nowadays around this stuff when you put a nice digital front end on yeah the front end's going to look good but the customer service will just be terrible because it will end up collapsing and and pointing through the middle piece right on that point, uh, co-founder Jason wrote a blog post a while ago called My Bank Has an App. And regular listeners, you'll have heard this story a bunch. But for you guys, the idea is he's sitting at a dinner party one time and they ask him what he's doing. And he goes, oh, I'm building a new digital bank. And they go, oh, no, I, I don't wish to bother you, Jason. I don't wish to scare you. I know you've given up a decent job to, to go do this, but my bank already has an app. And it's like, to your point, John, that's just the the tip of the iceberg everything that goes on behind that is where the cost is and so what kind of problems can that cause we were talking about reconciliation briefly do you want to explore that maybe adam yeah sure so um going back to the, the, the scalable foundation story um when we were looking at what was available in the market and where we needed help it was clear that we didn't want to build another custodian and brokerage firm underneath what we were doing on day one um it just felt like there were entities out there that could do that piece they could hold the client monies they could place trades on our behalf um, and we would build all of the the tech that's required to manage portfolios and we went to market and had a look at what was already available and found nothing that would be suitable for our needs nothing that could manage you know in our day one vision tens of thousands of portfolios in our current vision ultimately hundreds of thousands if not millions of client portfolios so we had to build that from scratch um, but we still plug into into legacy systems um, so for example for custody and brokerage for our direct-to-consumer proposition for our ing offering and now we have four custodial integrated across Europe. So we had to be very cognizant of the communication flexibility that we had on our side 
to be able to communicate trades and reconcile back to us. Um, so one important part of, of what we do is that whenever we place trades, uh, we reconcile what the custodian sees on their record and with what we see on our record and any discrepancies are managed on an exceptions basis. And that's what we do every single day to make sure that what we see and what the custodian sees match. That's what we call reconciliation. And we have to in our current setup where we rely on a custodian bank to do the custody books and records, we have to be able to communicate with them at scale. And that's challenging when you're touching legacy tech. Absolutely. So, Sean, can you expand for me what those challenges are and what impact those challenges might have on customers? Yeah, so we started with a clean sheet of paper. Uh, I'm really glad we did because it means you've got less problems down the line. But we actually even, you know, doing what Adam's doing, talking about you know, outsourcing part of this, what we call back end, the custody service, we found that we weren't scalable for more than about 5,000 customers. Yeah. Ambitions to be a very big business, you know, millions of customers, but yet we weren't scalable even after 18 months. And actually the current ecosystem is not built for scale. It's built for rich people. Mm-hmm. It's built for looking after, yeah, a portfolio manager maybe have 200 clients and a spreadsheet. You know, he's looking after people very high touch. He's not looking after 50,000, 100,000 clients. Yeah. Uh, it's all very high touch with a lot of Excel, with a lot of people involved in operations. It's not scalable. It's not efficient. It's not low cost. Um, so we really tackled it. And every decision that we make is actually, can we do this for a million customers? If we can't, maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Uh, yeah, so it's really about bringing that hyper-efficiency, that scale. I love that sentence, this current system is built for rich people. Um, I think that's part of the problem a whole generation of young people have with the system, um, but they don't realize the, the layers in that statement because it appears like that from a distance in the news when you see that helicopter shot of Canary Wharf and them bankers doing that thing and you're actually like, well, it's not really probably the people in Canary Wharf that are the issue, it's the ones over in the city, but even then it's, it's a much bigger problem. But then the system itself, when you talk about that, you're actually talking about the plumbing and the pipes. And it was built for this one-off big transaction that you could afford to have lots of manual processing. And when we were in more of an analog age, somebody could run across the street with a piece of paper and that made sense to pay somebody to do that because there was only a few rich people to to kind of concern ourselves with. Now we're trying to bring in a generation of people to have the same level of service that an ultra high net worth individual would have, but right there on their smartphone. Yeah, so the current market, you need 800,000, right? 800,000 pounds to have a discretionary wealth manager. The technical term for what we're doing, 800,000 pounds and they'll look after you. Maybe 500,000 if you're lucky. Not a thousand pounds, not ten thousand pounds. Yeah, you need a lot of money to be in this market. But some of the some of the things that we still have to deal with, you know, not just the piping, but just the way that the system works. Um, you know, we try to automate as much as we can, but there are points in which we have to integrate with other competitive businesses on the traditional side for example if somebody wants to transfer an ISA to us and it's not necessarily the point the case where uh, a client who comes from a traditional firm to ourselves can transfer to us uh, without us having a wet signature on a bit of paper oh my goodness I can solve that for you good news not always though no the wet the wet signature piece has gone away and we have been doing there's a you know there's a there has been a a lot of work done in automation around some of the legacy stuff. So the wet signature dates back to the 1924 Property Act that requires for the transfer of chattels and goods. What is a chattel? Well, that's just great old English, old right? School. You need, that to, you need to have a, a physical signature to pass the stuff, right? And interestingly, you know, you've seen lots of electronic bill acts and they never get to, to, to the point. So you, you find a solution to it. So, so you know, that there's been a lot of work done to to solve some of that but it hasn't taken away the point that says i still all i've done is i've taken what today's a kludgy process and i've taken some of the worst bits out what i haven't done is said why the hell am i still doing that why why do i you know what why is it so hard to move that piece we've automated today's processes yeah yeah what we're not done is thought about tomorrow's and i want to come back to something you said about reconciliations right because i think this is where you see the the step change from today's technology to tomorrow's technology so at callistone at the end of last year we announced that we are moving our entire global network we're in 34 countries 1200 
clients, 12,000 trading points. We carry 7 million funnel order messages a month. We're moving our entire internal network onto distributed ledger technology. And we're going to get it done by 2019. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I was just going like, can I get a yeehaw? Can I get a, well, can I get a hit? A, well, an as, amen? Long as, you, as long as you put that in the headline, you, the number of hits on this podcast has just gone up, right? Because we, you know, we can mention distributed ledger technology, blockchain. Are you changing your name as well? Are you going to put yeah, Bitcoin or blockchain? Cal- yeah. that, that's good. That's good for the share price. We, we have we have come up with Calicoin for payments, but I think we'll just we'll skip yeah. around that. But you know, if we come back to this bit with. You know that you talked about reconciliations, right? And you say you've got a you've got an underlying custodian, and you've got to reconcile your positions and all of these things. If you move this whole thing onto new technology, so you move it onto distributed technology, the distribution chain, even if it stays as it is, is on that. There is no requirement for reconciliation. Because I know that what I see is what you see. There is a single immutable record that everyone looks at, and everyone makes sure it, it's the same thing. Well, it's not a single record. It's a shared record. It's a record that everybody can see as the same as everybody else's. Because if it's a single record, there's a governance question of who holds the single record. It is. is, You're absolutely correct. Now, if you think about that, you know, what, what, what... why do you need to do a reconciliation? You're right? changing the game. You're changing the game. And, and God love the guys at Fundrex in Dublin. Um, there will be a job for them in the future. They're a, a scale-up reconciliation provider in, in Ireland. Um, and the conversations I've had with them is that the things that you guys will be reconciling going forward, when you have a DLT set up for assets that will move asset class by asset class, obviously crypto funds are the first one to have an asset class that is um, you know, blockchain-based, as that progresses, what they'll be reconciling is chain to chain. So where you have interoperable ledgers that you you have an asset class uh, operating on one ledger and an asset class operating on another one. There will need to be some um, aggregation of that and some reconciliation across the board. They'll be doing different things and moving up the value chain. Um, but there will always be in this industry, I think, a point to say, there is a record being kept. It is perhaps a distributed record moving around to all the different stakeholders, but there will still be someone that says, I want to have my own record of that. And duplication as a service, I think, will continue. I agree. So reconciliation sounds like two family members that were kind of estranged and had a hug for the first time in many years. But actually, it's a really important thing because actually, if one organization says, I've bought something from you, or like you said, transferring an ISA, I had an ISA with Hargreaves Lansdowne and I've moved it to Nutmeg or Scalable, or I had an ISA with my bank and I've moved it somewhere else. To have that wet signature, in other words, I had to get a physical piece of paper and, and do something on it and send it in the post, was this really draconian analog process. And what we've done for so long is digitize analog processes. And the classic example of digitizing an analog process is uh, when the iPad first came out, we saw the the newspaper on the iPad where you could flick through the newspaper and actually know what what becomes truly digital is YouTube and Twitch and things that are digitally digitally native. And digitally native is, is a really interesting space because as much as people have talked about the hype of Bitcoin, the really interesting thing, I know it's a bit of a meme, is it's, it's what's interesting about the technology is that it's natively digital assets. Natively digital in a world where, in the physical world, we had physical uniqueness. Now we have digital uniqueness because the five of us sitting around this table might all have a record. In the old world, if we were going to transfer that ISA from John to Simon, then there might be Adam and Sean and Pete that also need to see that. And the way we'd do it is I'd send an email to John with a PDF attached to it, and then you'd send that email on to your custodian, and I'd send that email on to my custodian, and they'd set about doing some middle and back office processes, which worked when people were rich enough to pay the fees for all of that. But if we're trying to engage a new generation, if we're trying to bring in a new generation of people, then we need to bring down the costs, and we need straight-through processes across the industry. And so how do we get there, John? How do we how do we move towards that? Because surely it's gonna be it's not gonna be easy when we've got all of this sunk investment and, and sunk cost and, and sunk infrastructure. I think it's I think it's going to be done by genuinely the people that will win are people that will start from from scratch again. It doesn't mean they have to throw the entire organization away, but they're gonna create 
the next generation, whether it's platform, solution, product, services, whatever, they're going to create that using you know the right technology stacks the right processes driving the right experiences for the consumer and then over time they'll move their legacy either more onto that or their legacy will naturally do away over time I, I think that's what we're you know we're, we're, we're going to see the way we've we thought about it when we when we built scale well, what is it now three just over three years ago um was that if we tried to be on the bleeding edge of technology we wouldn't have been able to start the business because we had to touch the old world. And if we went along and said, look, this is how we want to do reconciliation, it's going to be on a blockchain. <laughs> and every custodian bank would say, get out of my offices. What are you talking about blockchains? Um, so we had to be cognizant of the fact that we had to be able to integrate into their current processes, but also we have to remain not at the bleeding edge at the cutting edge i think it's a fine line between like really developing the newest 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 tech or being very close to that development to be able to always be at the innovative forefront um so that even when we're doing our own business or if we're integrating with partners so let's say we're developing a b2b robo advisor for a bank we want to provide them with a subscription to innovation you know we it's not it's not you know, building one legacy technology and then for five years having it there and then thinking, oh, you know what, we need to replace our technology. Mm -hmm. You know, let's pay a managing consultant five million quid to come in and build a complete new system for us. You need to be continually innovating yeah. because tech isn't a, a side yeah, project it's, anymore. It's not about just the technology. It's about the style, isn't it? The way the, the business functions. You know, our business, we have the overall the majority of people haven't come from financial services. They come from different industries. They've got a very different approach, a very different uh, questioning approach. Why do, we, why do we have to do it this way? Why does financial service do it that way? So it's often a mindset rather than just a thinking about purely about the tech. And, and when you come back to the customer perspective, it's very much about the user experience and, and they come with Amazon in mind so when you give them a great accessible easy to use service they expect almost a one click uh, and that's where this interaction with the financial services industry comes yeah. really problematic to us. So we make this everything very digital, very easy. We have a fully digital pension, no signatures. But when we touch other providers, they may want to see your birth certificate, just do the transfer. You know. And so do you hide that problem a little bit, no. the concierging idea? No, we raise it. So we try and simplify, make it very easy, but we're really clear to customers. You know, keep them on track. So the provider you're transferring from into Nutmeg, this may take six months. We know this provider and we're going to keep you informed along the stages and, and beware they may ask for some of these issues that may uh, come up we can do that so by provider so you highlight all the deficiencies in their previous providers solution which naturally promotes no i think it's about being aware of of the process so we know that some providers are brilliant and they do instant pretty much instant transfer and we're talking a couple of days electronic transfer no wet signatures no further paperwork some providers are very very difficult and can take three to six months but we, the important thing is to keep the customer engaged through that process and that's the most important piece which you just said and i was kneeling you a little bit just because you know you said have some fun and pretend you're down the pub and you know we're a couple of pints in now and we're we should but it's that piece that says as long as you prepare the customer and you're honest with the customer and you talk to the customer through the process and the journey you'll keep them the second they find something you didn't tell them about or warn them about or something that's unexpected you put them back on edge again and particularly when you think about what we're doing these these customers are trusting us with one of the most important things they have with they're, they're trusting us with their money, but they're also trusting us with their future. Wow. You know, they say, you know, if you look on Nutmeg and it says, "What are you saving for?" and you can do different things, you can put, "I'm saving for my kids' school fees," or my, I'm, I'm, it, it's something. So, geez, if suddenly I put, "I'm saving for my kids' school fees," right? My kids are really, really important to me, and and suddenly something happens. I'm not just I've lost a bit of money, but that's impacting my kids' education. That's impacting on their future. We, we, we sometimes descale the importance of what financial services is in people's lives can do and the good it can do if done in the right way. It, and it's massive. And it, it's such a big, huge part of the world. And that, you know, sometimes I'd like to, to rock up to a, a CTO of a big bank and put my arm around their shoulder and say, listen, it's not your fault. Right. That, that what we've been left with today in terms of what all of us, a, a bunch of us have managed from a technology perspective and the places we've been is a conglomeration. It's been mergers and acquisitions. It's been consolidation in the industry that will continue. 
Um, and what happens is that you're left with 400 systems that the customer should be completely unaware of. Um, and sometimes it's hard to protect them from that, right? And that where there's compliance flags that get raised and so on and so forth. And what I like to say to people is that, okay, look at what you have right now and look at your customer's place in that. And imagine if an asteroid hit it, how would you start over? And how would you put the customer at the middle of that? Not at that big pit where that asteroid hit, but at the middle of the journey in terms of um, getting that customer on board quickly, getting them put through your platform, um, and then opening things up to them so that they can start to gain from um, the services that you provide. And I think what you're describing there is the startup approach. And I think Nutmeg and Scalable are good examples of having taken that startup approach to being customer-centric, to understanding customer needs, to getting to financial literacy, to it's it's inform as well as help invest it's there's a there's a social responsibility aspect to that but there's a whole other set of things that that come around it so how do we bridge that lack of financial literacy present in a generation when we've got this complexity of of legacy systems that are holding us back from a cost perspective and there's a jargon that comes with that is it how do, and, and we also mentioned as well the front end thing. John, you talked about lipstick on the pig. Can we go further into the stack? Can we can we go deeper? Or is the platform always just going to be, and I say just, I'm being somewhat facetious, but is it just going to be that pretty bit of front end that has some education to it? Or can it do more in terms of risk management? Can it do more in terms of really helping people uh, engage in a media sense? I know, uh, Sean, you do, a, you do a lot on that, but can we do more? And, and is that where we're headed yeah i think so i mean what i really enjoy i do a monthly video for our customers and i love this interaction between what our customer you know, advocates are saying what are what are customers saying how do i loop that back to the the messages we give on the video so to take me back a, a few years i used to look after very rich rich individuals typically 10 million pound portfolios but actually talking to the relationship advisor say what are our customers saying what are those two thousand guys saying or you know people saying and actually they couldn't give me a comprehensive answer I didn't have any understanding what was going on with my client bets. Now with, you know, 50,000 plus, I have a much more deeper understanding from the people that talk to them all the time. The data, I understand them, the way people behave, the way they interact with our service. And I can loop it back into the messages and the things that we educate our customers about. So I love this kind of cohesiveness about how we engage with our customers on a regular basis, whether it's through social or whether it's through chat or whether it's through, you know, through calls and, and presentations. So I love this sense that we are very connected with our customers and we can use data and other inputs to really understand behavior. It's an interesting comparison to if you take a look at the U.S. and a couple of the, the robo-advisors there, um, look at Wealthfront, look at Betterment, right? And both of those launched in 2008. And if you look at Wealthfront's website, there's no mention of a human element, okay? The only thing that they have in there is pretty much the, the, the profile of their, of their team, and they talk about their backgrounds in terms of investing. Um, and they have done well gathering assets. Um, they do the account aggregation where you get the customer's current account, you get their credit cards, you get a complete view of their financial uh, their financial landscape. Um, but there is, what it's lacking to me from my perspective is that you don't have that educational element there. And so, Pete, sorry to cut across you, but is there something we need to do at the workshops in schools and universities and the education side? Is there something we need to do in media? I mean, this podcast is one example. What you do with the BBC is one example. But are there new types of media? Is is, is the YouTube generation, is, is, is that going to be where we see more of it? Because I, I can't tell you how many people I see who have uh, hundreds of thousands of followers who can tell you what crypto is going to be big. But I don't know how many there are on YouTube that can give you sensible guidance about actually maybe that's not the best place for your future and it's massively volatile and you should be really careful do you know what i mean i think there's um that's the holy grail that you're asking for there i would like the holy grail adam i want the holy grail yeah, how, give how me do, the holy grail how, how did people do it you know 30 years ago right how do they educate each other on investing so you know the reason why i started scalable was you know i worked in financial services in a trading capacity people would ask me friends and family what should i do with my money um and i would never have a good answer for them um you know be like i'll buy this this hot fund and then six months later you'd they'd say hey it's done really bad and you're like oh yeah i completely forgot we had that conversation down the pub yeah my dad ago. lost 10 grand off of one of those <laughs> advise 
from me. So, you know, the, the idea that I couldn't actually send them somewhere where somebody could help them, that's that's pretty much the genesis. And that's why myself and two ex-colleagues, you know, decided to, to, to leave to, to start it. Um, there's a really interesting opportunity, I think, that we, we have as an industry and, and as a nation, and that's um, uh, the launch of auto-enrollment. Um, and this is something which has been kind of swept a little bit under the under the hood for the time being. You know, everybody in the UK now is going to be delivered a pension. Um, starts at a very small contribution, but ultimately it's going to become about eight percent of your of your salary, and probably going even higher again. Um, and people, are, especially the younger generation, are going to understand why am I paying eight percent of my salary into a vehicle that I can't touch for many many years? And right now we don't provide them governments, uh, employers financial institutions with enough education around the value of that. And one of the things that I think would help derive that value is the so-called pensions dashboard, uh, which is a project which is being... There's pushed. laughter around the room. It, it, laughter around the room because it constantly gets pushed. It's Yeah, it is a hope. It's open banking for, for pensions, essentially. Um, and it, it would allow individuals to be able to aggregate their pension accounts and hopefully investment accounts as a whole but who knows where it's going right now because it's being pushed around different but, but that's departments not for, in that's government not for the, that's really not for the new generation is it i mean that's 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 a thing for people that are built up over a period of time but everybody's know, illiterate when it comes to finances I, I i agree with that piece right i just don't agree with a pensions dashboard because you know that's that's the, the new generation, when they eventually get the pensions, there will be, there's already a myriad of apps that will just be able to go on because they'll be buying onto newer technology. They'll be able to screen scrape this stuff. They'll be able to pull it through. It'll work. I think that, you know, the challenge comes back to education. And I don't, I agree to a degree that we are missing a, an opportunity with auto-enrollment because we are at least forcing people to save. The danger with it is we're forcing to save them into something that they'll consider very boring. They won't get any good feedback on and do other things. And it'll just feel like you've but made me do something stupid and it was carrot, uh, it was stick rather than carrot. it's back to this thing, and you mentioned YouTube and other things, right? I've, I, I have, I, my, my kids are 20, 18 and 8, right? And yes, the 8-year-old was planned, I'm that mad, right? Uh, but, you know, the 8-year-old looks at stuff on YouTube all the time and he'll, he'll look at stuff where people are explaining how to build stuff uh, on, uh, you know, what's it, war, uh, war, Minecraft. My, Minecraft, thank you, right, we do, that was adorable, John, my wife does spend more time working out what, what he's playing on, we've got all the right protections, I promise you, right, you know, I'll go in and he'll be sitting there, he'll be, he'll be watching some guy, some young guy, right, explaining right i'm doing this and what i'm doing and then i build this wall and i do these things and i did it and and you know i've heard this term gamification i'm not sure i think everything has to be in gamification but you've got to make it relevant to that so what's relevant to that is there's something he enjoys doing he understands it he doesn't know enough about himself he's used the latest technology and stuff to go and find somebody else he doesn't know this guy from adam but he's giving a mutual piece of information if we can package this up up from that age and just work out how we slowly drip it in so it becomes the norm. So by the time they have money, they're already thinking about what to do with it. Can I rephrase that as a structure of, of what the tasks has gone through? So he's got something that he enjoys. I enjoy Minecraft. Yep. Uh, he's got a behavior which has been set um, by other people, which is when you want to learn about it, here's this really... So through the network, here's somebody else that knows about Minecraft. You should check out this YouTuber. So there's, there's the network element. So the second thing is you should check out this YouTuber. That's where I learned how to do a thing. So that's a skill set that's been built. And the third thing is there's an element of entertainment with that YouTuber because when they're teaching you this thing about Minecraft, they're usually doing it with some humor, with some humanity, and it's not dull. Like some of the reason the big YouTubers succeed is because they're a little bit more interesting than here is how you put some bricks on top of each other in a virtual world. It's here is something that you didn't know you could do in this virtual world. Here is something that's more advanced. And there's here's an element of entertainment or charisma with it, putting the humanity back into education into a certain degree somewhere along the line we got the idea that 
education had to be like this authoritative, I will teach you a thing and look how superior to you I am and different tone of voice. And it became less about we, we have this shared thing and look at this cool thing I found. Like that kind of tonally, I think is really interesting. But how do we move to that? I think um, it, it's hard to do. It's a hard thing to do. But it's interesting to see that that's where people are engaging. And, and can you, and, and making some subjects that are very, very dry interesting is also hard. To yeah, do. making it fun. Um, I, I talked to a friend about this a couple months ago in terms of that social element of investing. And he said, well, how do you figure out what people did, like I was saying, Adam, 30 years ago or 40 years ago in terms of how do I start investing? And what he said was that his Uncle Joe got together with three or four of his buddies um, once a month for their stock club. And they talked about what they were doing. Um, and they traded ideas. And it was very social. They had fun with it. And they competed with each other. Can you do that in the digital world? Can you put a few folks up on a, uh, a digital channel that are all like-minded individuals and they're comparing in their own online stock club as part of a platform, right? And you get you end up um, making some fun with it and not doing that with Uncle Joe, um, but with a new demographic that should be investing that perhaps or not. I think here we should not forget that we've all got behavioral biases. Uh, you know, getting together a lot of like-minded individuals, maybe five or ten, and talking about this great new story they're doing. They're just really amplifying some of those really bad behaviors about investing. So chasing a story, chasing a theme, really ramping up risk, uh, you know, not really thinking about the time horizon and, and how you're behaving. You know, part of our objective is actually to try and help customers through these behavioral issues, you know. Uh, we're seeing a lot of these in Bitcoin at the moment. You know, people yeah. are really ramping up as we're getting to these kind of stages. So I think you know, we need to be there as coaches. And I think, so investment clubs, I think are really good. They're great for the hobbyists uh, that love picking that stock, finding maybe the next Tesla uh, that's going to give them that great run, multi-year run. Uh, but that's really, I think it's really niche. Um, for the mainstay of people that need to invest, you know, keep things safe and steady, they can depend on some of the basics that we know about investing. We know work, diversification, keeping costs low, thinking about risks, quite boring stuff really not really exciting stuff that's going to really make an investing club really have a great time but really the great way for people to re meet their goals yeah and I, I think i'm just thinking something like an e-toro right and where you could follow people's portfolios follow their strategies making that more interesting and more social right and like you're saying there is there is a niche element to that not everybody wants an e-toro where you're following what other people are doing you're, but you're, you're still on the how right so how is great for people that have made a decision to invest, to save, right? And then you've got the bits. Yeah. But if we just rewind back before yeah. that, why? There's a whole there's a whole generation. You've got to get to why before you get to how. And if we can find a way that uh, we can explain that, you know, a little bit of, of saving now can uh, pay dividends in the future. And I'm just going to reiterate a conversation between my eight-year-old son and my 18-year-old son who were playing some uh, uh, car racing game. And my eight-year-old son, as soon as he earns money in races, he spends it on upgrades. So he only gets really small upgrades. And my 18-year-old son, who's studying economics at A-level, and I've read some of his papers, and by Christ, this stuff's still really boring, right? <laughs> But he's saying, no, no, but you're missing out because actually if you had more in, then you get a bonus on that and you do other things. And he's just started educating him a little bit through gameplay that says, don't take it out right now, leave it in there or grow a bit more, then you'll get a bonus, then you'll get something else. And in a world where there's instant gratification, you know, everything with my old is about instant gratification. Investing and saving isn't, you know, unless you're trading in the Asian markets for instant gratification, it's meant to be a long, longer term thing. And we s somehow have to get a across that a small element of sacrifice is useful now for something much better in the future. It's the outcome. It's a mirror. It's a financial mirror and saying, listen, look, you've spent 500 in the last two months on something completely frivolous. What if you had invested that and use some uh, back market and say, well, look, you could have grown that 
1,000 to 1,050 or 1,100 over the course of the past six months if you had invested that. And just showing the outcome of, of what could be the, the opportunity cost. And again, and you're investing. into how, right? I think showing the outcome does get a bit into why, which is, uh, but, I, but I think there's something in this, this education thing that, that Sean had and the, the story Adam told about sort of why he started Scalable and some of the difficulty you had with, you know, kind of just trying to help somebody and the difficulties that everyone's had. It, it's really, you've got to find your own ways and you've got to learn. The interesting thing about games is people learn and they learn how to learn whilst they're doing them. And so there's something in games and gamification and uh, the way can, people consume content around that that could be could be really compelling. And then changing the conversation with a, with a different generation of people so that they're thinking differently about money. And I think the really interesting thing about this crypto asset bubble that we've seen ourselves in is that it's made a whole generation of people interested in financial services and it's also taught them about the pitfalls um, as we've now gone up a peak and quickly back down the other side. Um, and, and hopefully that turns into interest that then diversifies. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. Maybe I'm being naive. Yeah, yeah. I think I think maybe often you speak to someone about investing. They go, well, I tried that once. I bought some you know bank shares. I lost money on that. I didn't like investing. I won't do that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because they follow bad behavior. Uh, don't follow the basics. They go, well, I didn't really enjoy that. I'm not going to do that again. Actually, you're not many people think I'm going to approach this quite sensibly. They tend to approach it on the excitement and what can I get out really quickly. So the, the basics are counterintuitive. It's kind of one of those where there's a, there's a great book I once read called uh, The Decisive Moment by an author called Jonah Lehrer. And he tells the story of, of two sides of the human brain. There's the side of the human brain, which is automatic and instant gratification, which is actually really powerful and really useful. This is the ability to, um, so when uh, Tom Brady, for Pete's benefit, a, a Patriots fan, is looking down the field and sees, uh, has something like a quadrillion different potential outputs you know, the, or outcomes. There's different wind, there's different players, there's different mood. Somebody in the crowd could shout. Like there are so many different things that could happen that change where he's going to throw the ball, but actually consistently makes the right choice despite the fact that there isn't enough time for all of those inputs to reach his eye and for that to reach his brain to to be able to make the right choice. That's an incredibly powerful computer, but it's also one that's subject to a lot of biases, our own behavioral biases, Sean, as you were saying. The The opposite story is the story about a fire team and a fire team are fighting a fire that's coming towards them and behind them so in front of them is a fire and behind them is a hill the uh, there are f- about five or six different uh, people in, the, in this in this crew fighting the fire and all but one all but the old fire chief run up the hill to get away from the fire the fire chief decides to set a fire at his feet because actually he realizes there's something different here so he sets fire at his feet, stands out of the way of the fire. The fire burns the fuel and then is able to uh, kind of step back into where there is no fuel for the fire. So as the fire comes towards the, the fire people, the, the, you know, the people fighting the fire, it immediately goes around the fire chief who's, who's burned the fuel at his own feet and rushes up the hill and kills all of his crewmates. Sometimes the thing that seems most logical to us is actually the wrong thing to do. And the instant gratification can be the wrong thing to do. I think this is exactly why the business model of robo-advice, this idea of people doing it for you, um, makes sense. Because there are so many pitfalls doing it yourself. And actually, we've got an industry and the press that throws messages at you all the time. You know, markets are all-time highs. Maybe they're going to go down. Maybe you should sell now. I mean, the amount of time over the last two years we've heard that markets all-time highs. You know, is this the time to sell? They're getting expensive. Conversely, markets wipe off £8 billion on share prices. You, know, you don't hear, really hear much when markets go up. Well, so most financial institutions make money when you trade. It doesn't matter if it goes up or down. As long as you're trading, they're making money. And so they you want hold, you to trade. They're not making money, and they don't want you to hold. Yeah. Interesting perspective, gents. Any final things to say before we wrap this one up? And uh, where can people find out more about you? Let's start with with you, Adam. Um, just Google scalable capital. You'll find out about what we're about. Um, do robo advice, both D to C and B to B. Thank you very much, Adam, for being here. John, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, again, you can go and look at the Callistone website. You'll see what, what Callistone's trying to do in the mutual fund industry. Thank you, John. And Sean? Easy. Go to nutmeg.com or look up us on Facebook or, or even see my videos on YouTube. The videos on YouTube. It's, it's almost like that's a good idea. <laughs> 
those videos, I'm sure they're going to become a thing. Um, and we'll try and make sure that people in the crypto space know about those videos. They could be do doing with some of that sense, I'm sure. Uh, thank you, audience, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show as always. And we'd love your feedback. You can leave us a review on iTunes. They help us so, so much. Or you can reach out hello at 11fs.com if you'd like to talk to us or anyone you've heard in today's show. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Have a great rest of your week and enjoy being a fintech fan. Thank you.